You're listening to Face Off, episode 124, recorded June 6th, 2011. Welcome to Face Off, your face-to-face web technology podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jay Robbins. And I am your other host, Mark Sanborn. In this podcast, we talk about web technology, things like web development, social media, and web entrepreneurship. As always, you can get the show notes by going to faceoffshow.com. All right, Mark, let's get right into it. We got some news and follow-ups here. The first news I want to talk about is Apple. Uh, This happened today, actually. We're on top of things today because... um, Apple just announced uh, that the, I, that they're taking the cloud seriously. They they announced this whole iCloud thing, which I kind of like, you know, I whatever. I think that, but what I think is interesting is their move to the cloud for updates. So if you buy Lion and you want to update, like upgrade to Lion or buy Lion server, you do it entirely through the Apple App Store. They are not going to ship this. Um. That makes sense. I mean, uh, why, you know, I want to update. I want to just download it. Why did? Why do I have to buy a disc? They're yeah. already sending like multiple gig updates. So yeah, I mean, makes I, sense. And I think it's interesting that you know, uh, it, with this we've seen you know video games and stuff like we, through Steam. You know, they've taken a really good leap towards the cloud with Steam. But there's always some sort of retail disc. Like they can't get past the retail market. And Apple has decidedly made this move that they're not going to ship any upgrades or they're not going to ship any uh, Lion server disks either. You buy a computer that comes with Lion, and if you want a server, you can just pay for the upgrade, which I think is, you know, I think that's a cool move that, you know, retail disks are always a pain, and we, just, we kind of feel good that we have this real disk. Um, and then later in another sort of thing we'll talk about, um, well, I, we can talk about is our next sort of news item. What, what worries people about this sort of thing is whether or not they can trust it. And, I, and I've been hit by this a couple times lately. So uh, earlier this weekend, uh, Ninja Button, which is a service we use on Agile Task, it's an A-B testing service for buttons, uh, it went down. And um, it kind of made me think, like, how much can you trust the cloud these days? And we always feel like I, the cloud sort of used to be this thing where it was designated, like, it's in the cloud. It's in Amazon's cloud. It's in Google's cloud. They have it on multiple data centers. It's super awesome. It will never ever fail you you know it is the cloud it's not a server uh and it, you know this ninja button thing like it didn't degrade very nicely like uh, with ninja button down we had no call to action button on our front page and we didn't know that until uh we found out later but you know it kind of made me think like well what about you know i like i use the zune service i use the zune subscription service and i like it a lot but recently it kind of hit me i lost my zune uh, mp3 player and i was like i don't have an mp3 player to listen to all my music on <laughs> I mean, it just kind of yeah. makes you think, you know, you kind of assume it's so secure, but every once in a while something happens and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, or when uh, Amazon's EC2 went down, there was like tons of sites that went down because Amazon EC2 is one of the very large uh, cloud providers, right? cloud like, service providers. Like the assumption is they'll never go down, but they might, you know, it's totally you need to have that contingency plan in place. Uh, like for me right now, I'm looking at my music going like, oh man, what am I going to do? I don't have an MP3 player now. All I have is my phone. What can I play on my phone? All my music is DRM'd, you know, and I used to not mind it, but now it kind of made me think. The other thing we were kind of talking about is it's only a matter of time before one of these companies kind of pulls a, 
a jerk move, you know, and your data's gone or got hacked or or whatever, and they don't they don't, they're not going to do anything for it. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't really read the terms and agreements very closely. <laughs> no um, so I'm not sure, you know, what kind of uh, rules they've got there. Uh, if they can just, you know, like if, if you're storing tons and tons of work and personal documents and things like on in a system and they can just get rid of it, um, you know, makes you kind of cautious a little bit about the cloud. But I, I still think it's going to be uh, something um, very useful and, and it's going to be kind of the thing as we go forward. But yeah, I mean, it just it you know it's it makes sense to aggregate these services into big things. You know, um, I, I agree with that. But um, sometimes it just made me think like it it doesn't take anything to be considered a, a cloud provider anymore. It's like software as a service is almost considered a cloud. And like, is it really a cloud? Like when Google, I remember Google specifically started really pushing the term cloud. It was that they have redundancy across multiple servers across multiple locations. You know, it was literally like this worldwide cloud where now it's just kind of like if you don't host it yourself, you can say that you're a cloud. So like we're a cloud task management provider here at Agile Task. Yeah, it's just kind of another term for Internet, I, I think. Or yeah. Software as a service, infrastructure as a service. And, and it just kind of makes me uncomfortable now because a lot of stuff I've learned to really depend upon and I'm starting to wonder if I if I should, you know, and uh, one of the things we'll be talking about, you know, for our topic today is, is pretty relevant. But another thing is, you know, we've talked about before is do you have a disaster recovery plan? Do you have a contingency in place? You know, do you back up to the cloud? We were kind of talking about this, like, you know, we were, you were talking about like, well, we could talk about like backing up from the cloud. And I was like, but I feel like the whole point of the cloud is that I'm not supposed to have to back up. But, you know, I'm finding out now that. You know, maybe I should. I, I probably should. But then it's like, why am I paying for this cloud provider when I have to have all basically the same infrastructure somewhere else or locally? I, it's it's very confusing. Or at the very least, have two cloud providers that you're you're backing. As long as they're not both using Amazon in the back end. Yeah, exactly. And then you never know. <laughs> cloud providers are using other people's clouds, and you've got cloud on cloud crime going on. <laughs> and, you know, it just doesn't work. It's uh, it's very very frustrating. All right, let's move on to our next news item that uh, you were actually, I figured you'd be really interested to talk about is that uh, eBay purchased uh, Magento, which is a big, you know, Magento, we were talking about this, Magento is also, it's kind of like WordPress, you call it the WordPress of e-commerce sites. So it's kind of like, you know, there's WordPress.org, which is the WordPress software, open source software. And then there's like WordPress.com where they host a sort of customized version of WordPress and, and sell it to people as a robust service itself. Uh, so like eBay bought kind of the, the commercial side of it, right? The whole Magento hosting service. Um, I'm not sure if Magento had a hosting service. I know they have different uh, products. One of them is an open source product that's, yeah, like you said, or like I told you that I said is <laughs> it's kind of like WordPress, uh, for, or yeah, WordPress for e-commerce. Hmm. Uh, it's written in PHP. It's open source. You, you know, install it and you've got a site with a shopping cart, uh, it's ready to go with like different payment gateways. So all you have to do is hook it up or, you know, like say that you want to support PayPal and go sign up for a PayPal account and you're ready to actually sell items and goods. Um, I guess eBay's buying it for, cause they're going to start at like an open commerce platform where people can kind of like wordpress.com where, you know, it's like a service you come as a merchant and the idea is you get multiple merchants, kind of like an online mall or something. Um, I'm not sure is this what like eBay's buy. plans to do with this. Is that kind of like Buy.com's marketplace or Amazon's, uh, you know, different merchants through the same site type of thing? Or um, I'm a, kind of assuming that eBay is kind of seeing what Amazon's done with their marketplace and where they've kind of got people together. You know, like if you go on Amazon, I don't know. 
if everybody kind of totally realizes this, but you're not always buying from Amazon. It's not always going to be shipped from Amazon. Sometimes it can be shipped from different locations um, in different warehouses. Billy Bob's vacuum supply. You know, they're selling the same item that Amazon or anyone else could be selling, but it's from them. I think eBay has gotten so large nowadays uh, that it's less and less of an uh, auction place and more of a place to just find a low cost, uh, you know, on that product. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It's, you know, it's the point now where eBay has perfect pricing information. So really, you don't get a huge deal of it. You get you get the price you expect, which is okay. Uh, but a lot of times you used to be able to go on to it. And, and it was almost like it was almost like, you know, a true sort of economic setup where like people have the price they're willing to part with it and you have the price they're willing to pay. And oftentimes that may have been lower than the market perfect price. And that was why it was so useful. But now so many people are on it and you don't even auction anymore. It, like most stuff is buy it now. Everything is buy it now. Whenever I go on there, I always just search by buy it now. Uh, I don't really do any auctioning anymore at all. Uh, it makes sense to, for them to kind of move this direction. I, I think the auction is at least eBay's auction section is dying and maybe they could push some of the people that are just selling goods, not auctioning. Maybe they could push them off eBay. So eBay could sort of return back to like a natural auctioning website and you could have this sort of marketplace so that that stuff doesn't get intermixed so much. Yeah. Kind of separate those like power seller stores versus actual auctions. Right. Um, the other thing too, we got to remember is PayPal owns pay or PayPal. Uh, eBay owns PayPal and they also have some special deals with uh, the post office where they actually can uh, sell labels and things. So they do have kind of a good thing going here, kind of combining a little bit of each of those services for uh, someone that kind of needs those services, kind of, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so. totally. That's pretty crazy. Check it out. All right. Our last sort of little news on. Hey, actually, before we go on to this one, I want to talk about, you know what happened? I was talking about relying on the cloud or just relying on e-merchants e and stuff. What happened to me this weekend is... Uh, my iTunes account got compromised, which I find very, very, very frustrating because, you know, you and I have talked about that. I hate that eBay, like, requires me, or not eBay, <laughs> iTunes requires me to have credit card information even though I make a purchase once every two months. Like, it has to have current credit card information or else it gets very angry and won't let you do anything. It won't let me download free apps unless I have current credit card information drives me nuts so this weekend my itunes account gets compromised and it's tied to my paypal account which is tied to my credit card maxed out my credit card buying all kinds of crap i mean i come in and i was like whoa what's this what's this paypal email saying receipt for itunes store and i look on itunes and there's like you know eight purchases of 40 to 70 dollars you know and and like they basically went until it stopped and i was like this is terrible i hate that i hate it when sites require credit card information especially when you know, if you're really want to be a security conscious consumer, you don't want to keep that stuff attached or stored in there at all. Yeah, that's uh, that's not good. Um, you know, we got like the PlayStation, you know, compromises. Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, it's it's one of those things that I think is inevitable. Uh, I think it's going to happen to everybody at least once. Um, so be protected. Uh, I don't know. And if Do you have any... Did, was it did, you were able to get it reversed or what I mean is yeah, it, was it I mean, a pain? So well this one was particularly a pain because for whatever reason I attached it to PayPal. I think this is when I signed up for it like eight years ago when I first got my iPod touch. I, I attached it with PayPal instead of just putting in my pure credit card information. So basically I had to dispute things at like three different places. I disputed them on my credit card company, I disputed them on PayPal, and then I sent an email to Apple. 
Uh, I got a response from Apple finally. It took him it took him like twenty four hours, which is a pretty good response time. But when like so your account's compromised and your stuff is getting like money taken yeah, out, yeah, you're it's sweating a, bullets it's forever. You know, I like I send him an email and I keep checking like five minutes later. I'm like, come on, come on, five minutes later, refresh. Come on, where's my email? Where's my email? <laughs> you know, uh, so it was a pretty good response time. But you know, I, it just kind of frustrates me that. A lot of these places require you to put in information in when, you know, a lot of times you shouldn't have to. Like, I end up just using a lot of free information or a lot of free apps and stuff on the iTunes store. And if I'm willing to pay for it, like, which happens so infrequently, I'm totally okay with pulling out my credit card and reentering my information. But they want one tied to my account, and I hate that. So the next part uh, of news we have is Skype protocol was reverse engineered. Yeah. Uh, I know. So, like, the Skype protocol... The Skype uh, uh, software. So normally, like software gets uh, reverse engineered and things, but Skype actually had, um, you know, a lot invested in the technology that they use. You know, we're off. We're all the. You know, we're blown away all the time by how well it can filter out background noises and things like this. Oh yeah, amazing. Um, so they they have also spent a lot in their technology in you know in protecting it. They've actually had a lot of their source code was had some AES encryption in it and things, and I guess it got reverse engineered to some degree. Yeah, I, I have yet to really fully understand what this means. Uh, like, what I, uh, does it mean that does it mean that Skype stuff is insecure that people can listen in on it? Does it just mean that their technology now is sort of exposed and they can't, you know? Like, uh, I, I did read an article that they, you know, even though this guy sort of uh, what do you call it, reverse engineered it, which seems legal by releasing proprietary information about Skype, they can still take legal action. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what this means as a Skype user, but it's just kind of crazy. Like, you know, a company that has very he- heavily invested in their proprietary information, you know, something gets reverse engineered, what happens then? And all these users who are using it for very personal stuff, like personal conversations, business conversations. I mean, Oops. I know, I know tons of business people and stuff that use almost Skype exclusively. So if it really, I mean, if it did get compromised and people can peek into conversations and stuff that has very real business implications. Yeah. Uh, I hope it's not, you know, because we use Skype a lot for, you know, I, I like to use Skype if I'm going to send over a password or something to somebody because it is encrypted end to end, even though, you know, you try not to do passwords through things like that. But yeah, that's so if you're going to do it, that's probably one of the better ones <laughs> to use. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see how that uh, uh, pans out. But make sure you change your passwords because... Uh, if Skype, you know, I, cause like the thing, this whole iTunes thing's had me thinking like, who knows how, how my stuff got compromised, you know, and this whole Skype thing is another, like there's another person sending a password that may or may not be decrypted, you know, or, you know, decrypted, you never know. So good security practices are, uh, is important as ever. So make sure you use them. All right. I want to think, uh, let's t- take some time to, uh, think our first sponsor episode, the little web app that we wrote called agile task. Dead Simple Task Management. Uh, check it out. 30-day free trial at agiletask.me. All right, let's get into our geek tool. What I want to uh, what I want to talk about our geek tool this week. I've been really into trying to save money and doing you know very practical things. I wouldn't say I'm like a green nut. You know, I'm not all about like I'm not like save you know save the earth. You know, I do everything. But you know, waste is waste, and I don't want to be wasteful. So electricity is something that I feel like I waste a lot. Uh, so our geek tool this week is the Belkin Conserve Smart AV uh, F7, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you can get the link to it in the show notes, power strip. And this is one of those really cool power strips where what you do is it has a master power uh, plug. 
So um, what you do is you plug like something like your TV or your computer into this master power plug, and then you plug in all the sort of energy sucking peripherals that you can't use unless that one device is on. So like, you know, I'm not going to use my Xbox 360 unless my TV is on. I don't turn my Xbox on unless my TV is on. So, you know, plugging your TV into the master outlet and then plugging your Xbox, your sound system, everything else into the auxiliary ones, what it does is on that master plug-in, it waits till it sees a spike in energy usage and then turns the rest on. And then if all of a sudden the power usage on that master one drops, it shuts the rest off. So like your printer, you know, like for your computer, right? Hook your computer in the master, your printer, your monitors, uh, my mixer, things like that that I'm not going to use unless my computer Computers on. I don't use my mixer or my monitors unless my computer's on. Plug your computer in the master, the rest, and then it also has two plugins at the end that are always on. So for things that you know, like a lamp or something that you're going to want on, whether or not you want your computer, uh, only twenty four ninety nine. Uh, and a, I think a great way to serve energy because there's so many little devices that are peripheral to like one thing that suck up a ton of energy all the time. Yeah, I know there's a lot of, uh, especially like TV related devices that have uh, kind of like a standby mode. Like I, yeah. I know even my speakers that don't really do, I mean, I don't know why they <laughs> it would need a standby mode, but um, there is a red uh, glowing light around the, the main button that's on all the time, no matter what, even though there's no reason for it. So if I had something like this, everything would go off and it would be nice. Right. I, it may cause some problems, like let's say with... Uh what do you call it? Like, you know, some devices don't really like to lose power because they do have a standby, you know, uh, and they get kind of cranky about like it. Like a DVR. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like your DVR is one that you want to plug into your always on. So that's why they have the two plugins at the end that are always on. Like your DVR wants to be on all the time. That totally makes sense. Uh, but you're right. Like your speakers, like how often do you use your speakers without your TV on? Like, you know, probably never. Some people might yeah. cook their MP3 player up or something, but... Um, you know, check it out. Twenty four ninety nine. I think it's a great way to try and save some juice because I know I'm trying to do that too. Because the electric electricity bill, it's not going down. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So check it out. That is the Belkin Conserve uh, AV F seven C 7 power saving outlet. All right, let's get into our web apps of this week. So I've been thinking lately a lot about traveling. Uh, I don't. I you know I'm I've always been kind of known as a person that doesn't travel a whole lot. Uh, and I kind of want to. I think it's time for me to start traveling. So I thought uh, I was looking for some traveling, some fun traveling stuff. And the first one is the Travel Pod Traveler IQ game. This is a super fun little game where it basically just kind of you can select categories. But what it does is just quiz you on your geography knowledge, which is I, I found like, for example, uh, what was it? I was on the easy one in Europe. Uh, and Europe is like I don't know anything about Europe. I am my geography <laughs> is so terrible. Uh, so this is a great way to learn it, have some fun with it. Basically, it'll ask you like to point out a place, and you can click anywhere on the map, and it scores points based on how far away you are from the actual place. You know, it's not like you don't just have to click on the country. Like, where is Istanbul, Turkey? You know, mm -hmm. you, like, you can't just click anywhere on Turkey. It's somewhere in Turkey. Uh, so it's a great way to sort of bone up on your geography. Like, they have some quizzes that get harder where it asks you, like, landmarks, like, where's the Pantheon? And you have to click on the map and check it out. Uh you know, fun way to waste some time. I think I like I like games like this. Yeah, I I, I realized I don't know uh, where a lot of especially the city one was kind of hard. Yeah, exactly. So uh, check it out. It's travelpod.com/traveler-iq. Uh, the last one I the last web app I want to talk about. Really excited. This is kind of a cool one because. Uh, I always wonder, like, where would I go vacation if I wanted to? You know, like, oh, do I want to go to Cancun? I don't know. So what this Explora Travel Quiz does is it, it just shows you pictures. And it, so it kind of fixes your, figures out your travel DNA through visual things. 
So like the first question is like, what makes a happy holiday for you? And there's like a picture of people jumping off a dock. There's like a feet in the sand. There's like some lobster, you know, beach chairs, you know, here's some people backpacking. Like I like to backpack. So I'll, you know, the next one was like, what's your favorite landscape? There's like the ocean, a city in Europe, ancient ruins, a couple beaches, some snowy mountains, you know, a nice dense forest or a farmland. Okay, farmland, I, you know, that looks more. And basically you answer these sort of questions visually. Like what kind of these, you know, what do you like doing on a holiday? What kind of things do you like to do? And at the end, it gives you this big, nice selection of, of places uh, and destinations that you might like based on those things. Like, so I, you know, mine were sort of very outdoorsy, very northern, not very hot. Like, I don't really like beaches and hot temperatures. So it was like one of them was like, uh, you know, check out Aurora Borealis in Norway, you know? So like, oh, maybe I should try and plan a trip to Norway or like go, you know, Vancouver, Canada or something like that. And uh, so like through this sort of visual exploration of things, it kind of gives you places you might want to travel. Yeah, this is really cool. I'm seeing some really nice places to go. Um, I was also uh, outdoorsy. Mine's a, I'm a nature lover, apparently. <laughs> um, it, it wants there's an Antarctica uh, trip here. I don't know about that. Oh, come <laughs> on, you... it'd be probably pretty interesting. But <laughs> you would love it. You would love it's a little it. Crazy. <laughs> and then, oh, like I, I guess could, I could... the one thing I didn't ask, like it, it'll ask you then, like, do you want to travel with a group? Uh, like a big group or just a couple friends or your family or alone or like with a partner like so like me and my wife you know then what's your budget you know we're pretty poor so I'll pick a low budget you know like where in life are you we're young hipsters with iPods so we'll you know select that one <laughs> you know it's just it's pretty cool I thought it was like a really cool way to kind of see some of the stuff that you you know if you kind of just don't even know where to start like I don't even know where to start because I've never traveled I don't really know what I like you know I, I don't really know mm -hmm. what would be interesting so this is a good way to start and find some cool places that you want to travel. If you guys have a news, follow-up, or web application you want us to take a look at, go to faceoffshow.com slash feedback. We'd love to hear your ideas and talk to you about what you want us to talk about on the show. Uh, and before we get into our topic, I want to thank our second sponsor, which is Mark Sanborn's own Rocket Ship It. Rocket Ship It is a multi-carrier solution, uh, shipping solution for websites using PHP and eventually Ruby, right? Coming and uh, Ruby and Python, I think, are in the pipeline still, right? Yeah, uh, Python's a little ways out there, but Ruby is like, uh, well, I'll be conservative. We'll say a couple weeks away. <laughs> yeah, well, everyone loves Ruby, right? Rails is the big thing right now. PHP and Rails, everybody loves them. Uh, so check it out, rocketship.it. Cool, cool package. Thank you for putting that out and helping out the show, Mark Sanborn. We really appreciate it. All right, let's get into our topic, Mark, which, uh, you know, this kind of talked about, uh, we kind of, I was thinking about this when Ninja Button went down. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with your website. And the thing is, when you put a website out there publicly, uh, you don't really know. You don't know unless you're really diligent. And even then, you can't be on the clock 24-7 waiting looking for errors trying to figure out stuff and a lot of times errors happen and problems happen to your users and you have no idea you know it's just impossible unless they decide they want to contact you which is very difficult most people don't do that uh you have no idea that something wrong so let's talk about some ways and things you need to look at when you're looking for you know issues and problems on your websites all right so like the two major things i think about um or the two sites that I kind of have experience with, I have sites that are kind of in maintenance mode. I don't go to them very often. Uh, if they were to go down, I wouldn't know about it for, who knows, two weeks, a month. Yeah. Um, because I'm not actively browsing content that I generated a while ago, you know, like. <laughs> You're not, you don't and then your blogs daily for the existing <laughs> content you've had for four years. 
uh, every once in a while, I actually like, hey, how do I do this thing again? And I actually Whoa. find my own articles. It's yeah. so great when I do that. I find Nick's Keeler um, articles all the time when I'm looking for the Linux stuff. Yeah, it's so useful. Um, so then the other thing is, is you know, let's say you have a site that's uh, generating income or, you know, it's a business type site. Um and you know you don't want it to be down for very long, or let's say you're like uh, Agile Task, you're running a service that people depend on and are paying for. You want to know whether they're up or down uh, right away, um, and so or if they have any JavaScript errors or anything like that. Um, one example, kind of for us, is uh, I think it was it was a face offshore, or was it one of my sites that actually like it appeared to be fine, but in Google searches it was like um, some kind of a hacker thing both was going them. on. Actually, both of our websites are our ad- face off show and marksammer.net. So basically, what they're doing was uh, if if the the uh, user agent uh, was the Google bot crawler. Uh, it would display a totally different website than what you would see if you went there with your own browser. Or it would look at so referrals you, too. Like if your referral was from Google, because I think the way they, uh, one way they looked at it was like most people don't go to Google and then go to their website. Most people go, mm-hmm. you know, I open up faceoffshow.com. So if you have no refer, it, you know, that really lessens the chance that the site owner is going to see something. Is going to see their own <laughs> stuff compromised. So this uh, topic today is dedicated to kind of monitoring your site uh, for issues and problems. So the first issue and problem we'll talk about is uptime. Uh, the first uh, app that we have talked about before is BrowserMob. Um, and this is a great service that allows you to test your site from multiple locations. Uh, and that's important if you want to see what kind of load times you're getting from, let's say, Europe or Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can adjust how, how often it checks your site. Um, if you know, you don't, you know, like on, on like Nick's Tutor or something like that, I'd probably only check it once an hour or something. Uh, you know, if I was, you know, if I was running a business or, you know, a freelance shop or something, I wanted to make sure my site's up all the time, you know, I, I might adjust it to five minutes, 10 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. They also have um, they also have like uh, selenium tests and things you can te- uh, test for like actual functionality. You could say like, uh, well, I think with a selenium test you might even do like refer um, like refer tests. So you could maybe you oh. know if Google refer. I'm not sure. That's possibly a, that's a good question. I, I have no idea, um, but it's pretty cool. I mean, you can just upload a straight selenium script. Like I just finished uh, a load test on Agile Task where I had like upwards of 30 users i think for 15 minutes um and so it was kind of cool like it you know i can see that it did fine it tells me a little bit about my load my load average my data throughput and stuff uh pretty pretty useful stuff uh the next one that's does just basically uptime monitoring it doesn't do uh well we'll get to that in a minute but uptime robot (laughs) which is totally free and it includes sms support yeah so Uh, Super nice, like you know, you you can what is it monitor up to fifty websites? Uh, it checks them every five minutes. It, I think it just does a really basic ping. So what's cool about Browser Mob when you're doing the uptime testing is it will tell you like the load time and it will tell you the failure point. So like if you have includes, like I a lot of times I get notified from Browser Mob about Agile Task uh, being uh, failing somehow, and I look at it and it's when it's trying to load Google Analytics, or trying to load some other external uh, JavaScript file where the CDN, you know, their content delivery network has failed somehow. So that's really cool. It actually loads it in a browser, and oftentimes if it fails, it send you. It'll take it. It'll send you the screenshot of what happened in that browser because it's actually doing like Selenium tests. Um, 
uptime robot, I think the reason you can add 50 sites and it's free, I think it does a ba- either a basic ping or just a simple like wget or uh, curl to you know look at a status. Like, do I get a 404? Okay, it's good. If I get a, or I mean, not if it's, I get a 404, that's bad, right? If I get a, what is it, 200, it's okay, that's fine. It's not down. I, I think it does a little bit more of a simple test, but you can do a lot of them and it'll check every five minutes and SMS you, or you can like have it tweet you out if you only check Twitter and not SMS. <laughs> but it's totally free. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good distinction you made. Uh, browser mob is actually more like a browser, whereas Uptime Robot is, or, or what we think it is, just uh, like a kind of a simple ping. Right. Uh, they even have like what's called a head request, which basically just says, "Are you alive?" It doesn't actually say. It doesn't actually try to load the page, so you wouldn't know if you got a four hundred four or not. Um, oh, okay. Or maybe not a four hundred four, but like a, uh, you know, like let's say you're, uh, or you know, like an internal error five hundred or something like right. that. If the, something goes wrong with the browser or the server. The next one is Pingdom, which is kind of similar to Browser Mob. Uh, it's pretty popular. They do have a, uh, so they do response times, error analysis. You can uh, generate, you know, like monthly reports uh, and lots of graphs and things like this. You, they do have a free account uh, that includes 20 free SMS messages or uh, email messages that are free for one site. Nice. So if you, and I think, doesn't Browser Mob, I think, has a free one too? Yeah, they have um, um, the way they do it is like you get 3,000 free requests. Um, so what you can do is is with those 3,000, you can check multiple websites. But it, depending upon your frequency, like you can have it check once an hour or every five minutes. Uh, the, the Basically, the number of sites, the frequency, and how many locations. Like there's, they have different locations you can check from. Depend, ah. uh, sort of depend on which level of ones you need. But you can get 3,000 requests for free. Um, the next kind of it's a similar category is load time. Uh, the two major ones here are browser mob, like we talked, and Pingdom. Another one here, it doesn't really have alerts, but you can check to kind of see uh, kind of a history of load times, and that's Google Webmaster Tools, which is a great service. If you, I mean, everyone I think should be looking at that at least once a month on their sites, uh, checking for crawler errors and things like that. Um, and also, like I said, the response times, it, it kind of graphs it and shows you as the crawler was actually at your site, uh, what kind of load times it received when it was going through there. Yeah. So like the I next mean, one uptime, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of these things, right? Like uptime is just the bare bones. Like, is your site up? I mean, I think everyone feels like that's very necessary. Like, is my site up? Everyone's like, is my site down? Is my site up? Very important. The rest of these are, are sort of the things where when you really start taking it serious, you want to hit upon like load time is something like that's a courtesy thing. Is my site slow? And not only just courtesy that affects your conversion rate and Google page rank as well. So, you know, is your site up? That's, you know, very critical, right? You know, mission mission critical is my site up load time, not critical, but very important and very useful. If you really want to get into investigating your site, helping it get better conversions, get better page ranks, things like that. Uh, the next one we're going to talk about air tracking is just even that uh, is that it's further level of that, you know, how are people experiencing your website? I think when you look at air tracking, it's one of those things where uh, these errors occur not to you, not while you're there. They occur to your users and there's usually no feedback mechanism, you know, there it, or if there is, it doesn't get used. So you shouldn't leave that to your customers. You need to leave that to yourself to get done. And when people incur errors, you need to fix it and not wait for them to tell you. So some of these errors could be like a simple JavaScript error where, you know, buttons are not working. Uh, they could be a spider error where the, uh, you know, Google can't properly crawl your site or it runs into parameters that can't be sent properly. So it can't display the page. Therefore, your pages are not getting indexed. Uh, so a great tool for that is Google Webmaster Tools. 
Um, and then you had some two tools, right, for JavaScript errors, uh, or does it do more than that? Well, it does more than that. So, um, the like, what's cool about these uh, things is you need to think about like think about your error messages too. Like, you know, Rails, I always laugh because with Rails, the default error message always says like, someone has been notified that this problem has occurred. And Rails by default has no notification method to tell <laughs> yeah. you that's error occurred. So, you know, are you lying to your customers? Yeah, kind of. So, um, you know, at, at the base level, you need to have like some sort of like your app emails you when it occurs, uh, hits some sort of error you know about, right? If you wrote the app, you can put in some sort of notification system to get an exception and have it email to you. Um, but there's other cool ones out there. So uh, our, our my friend, uh, buddy from Montana Programmers, Ryan Stout wrote a site called Exception Hub, which is really cool. And it's a JavaScript error tracking. So you put this little bit of JavaScript in your website. If any JavaScript errors occur, which luckily JavaScript errors usually don't affect the user visually. Like they usually, you know, unless you're running Internet Explorer 5, you don't get a big pop-up that a JavaScript error has occurred. It's just it fails silently. So Exception Hub, something like that is very important, like knowing that if you have Ajax errors or something that it's affecting your users, but they don't notice it. It's not like when you hit an error page and you're like, oh, this website screwed up. JavaScript errors usually just kind of make things break and it seems very confusing and the users don't know it. So Exception Hub is great for that. Um, another really good service is called Hoptoad. Uh, it's a lot like Exception Hub, except for it does a lot. It does like Rails and PHP and stuff. It's sort of generic error tracking for JavaScript, all these ones, uh, even iOS devices, so that they have kind of like Mixpanel. They have like an API where when an error happens, you can send it to it. And these these apps, Exception Hub and Hoptoad, they track your errors for you so you're not getting like an email box clutter. Like a lot of times what you'll find is when you get one error, uh, that same error will happen a million times. So if you have like your app email you, you'll get like a million emails. These these apps are a little bit smarter about noticing that this is the same error happening. So I won't you know notify you a billion times. And then they record it. A lot of them have integration. Like Hoptoad has integration with Lighthouse and GitHub, uh, so that you know when you start recording the the same errors happening when you fix it. I think with GitHub and stuff, it can pull out at the commit and say, oh this was fixed. That's okay and sort of close it or integrate with Lighthouse, make bugs when people get errors and stuff. Uh, pretty useful and very full full featured. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, you want to know if your users are running into problems or not. Uh, it can definitely con uh, affect conversion rates. Yeah. And I mean, one thing to think about is if uh, another way to put it is a lot of times if your site is erroring out, your users assume that the way you're getting notified or the way that they would get a hold of you to notify is probably just as unreliable. Or if your site's down, no one can notify you because they can't get your contact information because your site's down. So having mechanisms in place to make sure something notifies you for you is very important. Absolutely, especially if you're advertising it as part of the Rails default message. The next major thing is, so a lot of the uptime issues and load time issues and even for some, uh, you know, you know, like, you know, uh, JavaScript errors, traffic jams. Uh, uh, I want to say, you know, like I want to call it a traffic jam. You know, like if your <laughs> site gets dug or Reddit uh, or whatever, slash the dot. Old, yeah, um, the, the old traffic hammer where a billion people hit your website all of a sudden. If they, you know, if everyone goes there all of a sudden, you're going to have uptime problems. You're going to have load time problems and things like this. Uh, Google Analytics has, I think it's called intelligence alerts. Uh, and you can set basically for any type of analytic type um, stat, you can set an alert. So two alerts that I recommend everyone go set is set for no traffic. Um, and the reason <laughs> I do this is because every once in a while, and I've done this more than once. So now I, I don't, I can't do it because yeah. I got this set up is 
if I go change a WordPress theme or something like that, and I accidentally take my analytics code out of my site, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I'll check analytics, let's say once a week or something or once a month, I go in there and, you know, everything's gone. I'm like, well, I, I don't have any data for this month. This, you know, this sucks. And yep. so I, I kind of want to set an alert for that just because it's free and I can. The second one is uh, set it for high traffic. Um, take, you know, your your normal traffic load and do maybe double that or triple that. And whenever you get somebody, so oh, some big refer or something, you'll be the first to know. Uh, this is really helpful because you can actually, you know, set referring codes. You can say, you know, like if you get reddited or something, uh, you can set like a message. You can go in there and uh, set a static cached page to kind of help with the load. Uh, you can, you know, have a special message saying, hey, I, I noticed you guys came from this this article. This mm -hmm. is a cached copy or something like that. I've seen that before. Yeah. Um, it's important for marketing purposes, but also for tech support purposes. If your site's getting hit or your app is getting hit more, I mean, the odds are you're going to, that's when you're going to find more errors or more trouble. So not only does it give you the insight to know where this is happening and how to deal with it, it also lets you know, like, get ready. And if something bad does happen, you can be prepared for it and try and fix it before all this giant influx of traffic sees a dead website or a big error and decides to move on somewhere else. Yep. All right. Well, that uh, wraps it up for this episode of Face Off. I want to remind you guys, you can subscribe to the show by going to faceoffshow.com slash subscribe if you haven't done so yet. You can also leave feedback by going to faceoffshow.com slash feedback. Please like us on Facebook, shout us out on Twitter, uh, and do or send us an email any way to get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.